Got to keep us moving along. Job chapter 33. As I said, I want us to keep moving right along so that we can finish up Job by the first Sunday in December so that we can be ready for Christmas. We're going to skip now to what I will call the title of our, our message one last cross-examination. Now, I have been, you all know that I, I mean, I'm a news junkie. I've been, I watch, I watch all news, right? It's a, it's any, it's a wonder that I get anything done, right? So, um, the news comes on at 5 and I got to find out what's going on. And the news comes on at 10. I got to know what's going on. And then it comes on again at 11. <laughs> and it's like the same stories, but I just got to know, are there any updates to what's going on? Okay. Um, I, I, I watch cable news as well. I watch all three of the channels. I watch I watch Fox, I watch CNN, I watch MSNBC, you know, because you got to have balance, okay? Got to have, have balance. So, so this week, <coughs> they have uh, been having the impeachment hearings, and I have been in front of my TV two whole days <laughs> watching these impeachment hearings. And, <laughs> and then... When I have to leave the house to pick up kids on my phone, I have it running. I'm watching it while I'm driving. I'm being safe, though. I'm only listening. I'm listening. I'm listening. Okay. I got. I got. I got to know what's going on. Is, is there going to be some kind of a twist in these hearings? And one of the things that we uh, saw is that they start with a 45-minute. Um, question period from Democrats, followed by a 45-minute period of questioning from the uh, Republicans. So it's like a like a cross-examination because one is 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 doing a prosecution, and then they got to come with a defense, right, and try to explain away all of the stuff that the other side said. But then after those periods of time. Each member of the committee gets to do a five-minute questioning. And so I kind of liken Elihu's questioning, I mean, this um, 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 dialogue here, to the five-minute questionings of the, the committee. Okay. Job has had this back and forth with his, with his friends, right? And, and they make a point. And then there's a counterpoint, back and forth, back and forth. Okay. But, but now Elihu, right, who has not spoken up until this point, right, kind of like the rules of, of, the, of the committee now, that only the rank after the, uh, the, um, uh, the head of the committee speaks, only the ranking member or his lawyer can speak. But then after that, anyone on the committee can ask their, their questions. Elihu has, has sat back and just listened to the back and forth here. And now he's tired of listening to the back and forth, so now he speaks. <coughs> and so this is a last-minute cross-examination. Elihu is now going to contradict Job and his three friends. And he is going to try to show them why, as a young person, he is more wise than they are. All right. Like all young people do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Um, and what we will see is that Elihu takes a different angle at why Job is suffering. You will remember that 
Job's three friends say that Job had to have sinned. And because Job sinned, that is why God is punishing him. Elihu takes a different strategy to explain <coughs> why Job is being punished by God. Um, first, I want us to see, and I'm not going to go through all of these chapters. I really want to cover chapters 32 through 35 um, and still have us out on time. I see him looking at the clock like, oh, that's not going to work. <laughs> all right. But in chapters 32 and 33, Elihu is contradicting the wisdom of Job and his three friends. In chapter 34, Elihu is proclaiming that God is just, that he is righteous, right, as opposed to what Job has said. And then in chapter 35, Elihu condemns Job for being self-righteous. Thir chapter 32 and 33 Elihu contradicts the wisdom of Job and his three friends. In chapter 34, Elihu proclaims that God is righteous. And in chapter 35, Elihu condemns Job for being self-righteous. I want to read first chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. And this is the basis of what Elihu has to say. Verse 1, chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So Elihu here, after listening to this conversation for a while between Job and his three friends, he becomes angry at both groups. He's angry at Job because Job is justifying himself. He is proclaiming that God must be in the wrong because I've done nothing wrong. And he is angry with Job's friends because they are accusing Job, even though they have no evidence that he has done something wrong. And so the rest of the chapter, he just goes on to talk about how um, they say that you're supposed to let the elders speak because the elders are supposed to be the most wise. But I don't think that's true. I'm the young person. I'm smarter than you all. So listen to me. Okay? That, that's just the summary of the rest of the chapter. <clears throat> so you can see that it's probably going to go downhill <laughs> from, <laughs> from this point, right? So, chapter 33. I want to start at verse 8. Chapter um, 32 is just Elihu just complaining, right? Um, saying that both groups are wrong. Um, but he has figured out exactly why Job is suffering. He argues that Job is not being punished, bless you, because he has done something wrong. Okay. So he's contradicting Job's three friends. They had adopted this retribution principle, believing that the only reason someone suffers is because they have sinned. So this is God's divine retribution, paying them back for what they have done wrong. Elihu says that Job has done nothing wrong. He is not being punished because he has sinned. But God is punishing him preemptively. God's punishing him be punished him before he did something wrong because God saw that there was a deficiency in Job. And that deficiency is Job's self-righteousness. God saw that Job is self-righteous. And in order for God to, to root out this self-righteousness, God punished him in advance so that he can display his self-righteousness and it could be addressed. You see that? 
Now, let's listen to what <coughs> what Elihu is saying. And I, I, I want you have to remember that this is his point. His point is just, Job, you didn't do anything wrong, but there still is a flaw in your character that God is trying to perfect. So God punished you in advance so that you could demonstrate this flaw and then we could correct you on it and then you'll be fine. <laughs> okay. Listen to what he says. Chapter 33, verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my hearing and I have heard the sound of your words. I am pure without transgression. I am innocent and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instructions. Listen, in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. <coughs> man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones, so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out with once um, out which once were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near the pit and his life to the executioners. If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, uh, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found the ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy, for he restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at men and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right and did not and did not profit and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit and his life shall see the light. Behold, God works all these things twice, in fact, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. So Elihu says, Job, you didn't do anything wrong, but you are a self-righteous person. You're trying to justify yourself rather than God. That's the flaw. And so what God has to do is send this punishment on you so that we can see the self-righteousness and then a messenger, someone, Elihu, can correct Job and then Job can go back to his normal way of life. Um, look at what Elihu says in chapter 34, verses 5 through 9. He says, for Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water, who goes, um, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Now, Job didn't really say that. Okay, this is Elihu's interpretation of, of what he said. Um, but his point is still this. All of us have flaws. And what God will do in order to root out those flaws is that he will punish you so that you can be corrected and see your flaws, see your flaws and be corrected. And then after you repent, God will restore you. Um, now, this is a different way of addressing Job's sin. Job's three friends said, you have had, you've done something wrong, therefore God is punishing you. Repent 
and God will restore you. Elihu is saying, you did nothing wrong, but God punished you anyway. (laughs) Because God knows your heart, and he wanted to give you an opportunity to demonstrate your sinfulness so that I can correct you, and then you can be restored. Um, How do you think Job responded to this? We don't know because Job does not speak the rest of the book, okay? Um, Job's conversation ends in chapter 31. He doesn't say anything else, but probably the whole time he just sit there rolling his eyes like, I mean, I've already refuted all of this, (laughs) okay? Um, We know that this is not true because we saw in in the beginning, chapters 1 and 2, three times the author of the book of Job says, that Job is blameless, upright, he fears God, and he shuns evil, right? So even though, like all of us, Job had flaws, that is not why he is going through what he's going through. Again, Elihu is, is using human wisdom to try to figure out what God is doing, And as Job has already said in chapter 28, we saw this last week, right? Wisdom only comes from God. There's no way for us to figure out what God is doing. So um, in chapter 32, we saw Elihu being angry with Job and his three friends. Um, In chapter 33 and 34, Elihu contradicts their version of why Job is suffering, and he comes up with his own reason for um, Job's suffering. In chapter 35, Elihu sharpens his argument against Job's self-righteousness. Now, up to this point, Job has been, been calling for a mediator. He wants someone who can argue his case between him and God. Right. Uh, and now he's calling on, he has called on God to answer, God, speak. If I've done something wrong, God, say it now. See, God didn't say anything, so I'm perfectly righteous, okay? So Elihu attacks this argument in chapter 35, and he says that God is not going to speak to you, Job, because you are self-righteous. And he even says that he, Elihu, could be the mediator between God and Job. Chapter 35, verse 1, moreover, Elihu answered and said, do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against God? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hands? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. Because of the multitudes of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth? It makes us um, wiser than the birds of heaven. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of men. He does not answer because of the pride of men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Although you say, um, although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. And now, because he has not punished in his anger, nor taking much notice of folly. Therefore, Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. Job, because God has not spoken or answered, you sitting here running your mouth, saying that you're righteous, you've done nothing wrong, when clearly God will not speak to you because of your arrogance. 
God's not listening to you. That's why God's not speaking to you. Not because God's silence justifies you and, and lets us realize, oh, Job didn't do anything wrong. God is not talking to you because of your sin, your pride. Now, <clears throat> let us ask a question that I think many of us struggle with. Many of us, I believe, um, we vary between the argument of Job's three friends and Elihu's position. We believe that when we suffer, when we go through trials, it is because we have done something wrong and God is trying to get us back. Okay. Or we believe that there must be something wrong, some flaw that I have that God is trying to get at. And so God punishes me in advance um, so that I could correct this flaw. But does God punish us preemptively? Does God punish us in advance because of a flaw he knows that we have so that we can address it? Okay, I got to possibly, I got to know, I got some shaking, shaking their heads. The, the, does God punish us before we sin in order to keep us in line? Anybody, anybody? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would say that that way of thinking goes against the character of God. Um, not only does it go against the character of God, it goes against everything that we learned in the book of James. Now, I want you to turn back to James chapter 1 um, because... Elihu's argument sounds similar to what um, I explained uh, Job is trying to tell us in, in James, I mean, James is trying to tell us in James chapter 1. Okay. And so I want us to look at this again. And see that Elihu's argument is, is close but it's wrong <laughs> for a very specific reason. Okay. Now, again, James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, James, as I have um, explained here, I do believe that James is saying that the trials that we face are designed to address the, the, the deficiencies, deficiencies that we have in our character. Okay. Keep it for Wednesday, Bible study. <laughs> we all have deficiencies, emotional deficiencies, <laughs> mis uh, mental deficiencies, <laughs> character flaws. We, we, we all have issues that cause us to be double-minded and unstable, where we waver back and forth, and we don't live up to the calling that we have in Christ. And when we go through trials, right, the trials are designed, if we allow them to do their work, to cause us to become perfect, complete, and lacking nothing, right? So, 
it, it, it sounds very similar or close to what Elihu is saying, right? Except the trials that we go through are not sent to us as punishments, right? God does not punish us because we have these character flaws so that he can address them. But God does allow circumstances and trials to come our way so that we can become perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. Sometimes he sends trials our way so that we can become perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. But the trials and adversities that come our way from God are not sent as punishments. They are sent, if we go all the way back to the whole series in James, they are sent as good gifts from God so that he can address our character flaws and make us more and more like him. Now, how many people think that I'm just uh, splitting hairs with my explanation between Elihu's argument and James' argument? Does everybody see the, the difference? That God doesn't send us these punishments in advance to get us to address our character, but he allows the circumstances of our lives to be trials to make us better. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and this is where I'm going to I'm going to stop. Hebrews 12, one book to the left, to the left. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. This chapter is on the discipline of God. Why does God discipline his children? And it is true that God does discipline his children. Lord knows I know it's true. <laughs> okay. The question that we have to answer or ask ourselves and answer, the discipline that comes from God, is it punitive or is it restorative? When God disciplines his children, does he discipline us as a punishment, like a father who punishes his children because he's upset? Or does God punish his children so that he can restore them to their rightful place? And I think that everywhere in, uh, in Scripture, it is true that God will discipline his children, but his discipline is not punitive. It is not a penalty that he puts on us because he's angry. It is his love trying to restore us to where we are in Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the, the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay. So he says, sometimes you're being stifled in your Christian walk. And sometimes you're being stifled not by sin, by, but by some things that are just weights. Things that are not sinful, but they hold you back. He says, let us lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, because I think most people think that uh, Hebrews 12 ends at verse 2. But let's keep going. <laughs> okay. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons and daughters. 
There you go. <laughs> My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son and daughter whom he receives. So don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by the Lord, right? Because the Lord loves all of his children, and that is why he chastens them. That is why he disciplines them. He disciplines them because of his love, and he scourges, he, he spanks every child that he receives. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, um, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Listen to his argument. Every father disciplines, spanks his children because he loves them. And if you are a father that does not spank your child, does not discipline your child, it is because your child is a bastard. That's what the word illegitimate here means. You do not love them. If you do not love your children, don't discipline them. Let them run headlong into their folly so that they can die in their sin. But if you are a loving father, you will spank them. You will discipline them. You will, will bring them back from their folly so that they can enjoy the benefits of sonship. You see that? Verse 9, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them with respect. Shall we not much more readily be in submission to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our, um, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, okay? But it's painful. It, it hurts when you get spanked, okay? Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Notice what the author of Hebrews is saying. God disciplines and corrects his children not because he's angry he does it so because he loves his children and he disciplines them so that he can partake of God's holiness God is after your holiness he's not trying to beat you or hurt you because he's angry he wants you to be holy just like him and what he does the last last uh, phrase here he trains us by his discipline that's what discipline is it's not punitive it's restorative god has put you in christ he has set you free from sin he has made you a joint heir of all that he possesses with Christ. He has purchased not only your justification, but also your sanctification, you growing in God's righteousness. He's purchased that for you with Jesus' blood. And if we were to go back early in the book of Hebrews, he says that when we, knowing all of this, when we sin... We are taking the blood of the sacrifice and stomping it under our feet. But even in all of that, God is not angry with you because he loves you. As a matter of fact, it's not possible for God to be angry with you. 
The only way God can be angry with you is if it is possible for him to be angry with Jesus. Because you're in Christ. And he only sees you with the righteousness of Christ. So even when we sin, God does not punish us in anger. He disciplines us in order to restore us to the place that he purchased for us with his own blood. And his discipline is designed to train you, to get you back in the right place, right? The idea of training is with a plant. You know how sometimes plants, you, you, you have to brace it with a stick to keep it straight up until it's strong enough to stand on its own so it won't keep going limp. Okay. He's trying to train you in order to help you live holy. So not only is Job's three friends wrong, not only is Job's three friends wrong, thinking that Job had to sin and therefore God is punishing him, Elihu is also wrong. God is not preemptively punishing Job in order to draw out some inward sin so that it could be corrected. That is not God's way. God doesn't do anything with his people out of anger, because Jesus is the satisfaction for our sin. God will discipline us. <laughs> I think that all of us can attest to that. But God's discipline with us is in order to restore us so that we can become perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. Does everyone see that? Everyone with me? Now, I, 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 I draw this out because I think that um, as a church, going uh, through James and Job back to back, we're wrestling. <laughs> we're wrestling with, with some things, okay? Um, we're, we're wrestling with, uh, one, why am I going through the things I'm going through? Okay, and so we, we so, like Job and his friends, we're looking for answers, right? Um, and and as someone has says, in the absence of uh, in the absence of answers, we always assume the worst. <laughs> okay. And so, God must be angry with me. He must be punishing me. I must have done something wrong that He's getting back with me. I'm getting back at me for. Right. Um, and two. Um, because we have spent so much time talking about our works, right? Um, and all of our works are flawed. Right? We have been spending a lot of time examining ourselves. And when you spend a lot of time examining yourself, your choices, the decisions you've made in life, you become depressed. <laughs> okay. uh, and, and sometimes you begin to wonder, hmm, Am I really saved? <laughs> Is it possible for God to really save me? Um, matter of fact, I was, you're not alone. I woke up this morning and uh, told Janita, um, uh, um, I don't know why, like this, this particular thing that I, um, when I was a teenager, uh, just was on my mind this morning when I woke up. I was like, Janita, you know, I just be thinking about things that I do in life. And, and I told her the story. She was like, you never told me that. I was like, I did so. No, you did not. <laughs> and I was like, dang, I should have kept it to myself. <laughs> but, and it's funny that as I was getting dressed this morning, I was just thinking about just my life these last 39 years. And I'm like, God, God has saved me from myself more times than I can count. And when we start thinking about those things, we start to beat ourselves up. Right. And, and we wrestle and we question ourselves. We question our salvation. Can God really love me? Can God really, um, you know, can he really keep me? And do I have genuine faith? Okay. So as we are finishing up Job, Right, we're gonna finish up the uh, the book of Job um, and see what God, because um, after Elihu finishes speaking in chapter thirty-seven, okay, God appears. 
Okay, and, and now he wants to talk to Job himself. Okay, um, we'll look at what God says to Job, but after that, um, I mean, it's, it's fitting that I guess after we have gone through James and Job, and uh, we're wrestling with the assurance of our salvation. Okay, I'm not going to go um, to First John, right, which would be a great book to go through um, to address the assurance of salvation. But we've already gone through First John, um, so we're going to go to Galatians. Okay, we're going to go to go to Galatians, and um, I think that it will help us as we are questioning and asking these questions about why we suffer, why we go through things. Um, we wrestling with, you know, thinking about things in our past or in our present or whatever. Um, it will help us to see that God has never looked at our works <laughs> when it comes to his love for us. He's never looked at, at our works when it comes to his love for us. So as we are like Job's friends and Elihu questioning, why am I going through this? What, you know, what have I done to make God uh, send these things my way, right? It, it, it's important for us to make sure that we see all of these things, even what we've seen in the book of James about us needing to have good works, right? Good works in some way um, uh, plays a role in our final justification and in, in, um, when we when we stand before God we have to keep in mind and this is what Galatians is going to help us do it's going to help us keep all of these questions and all of these issues in our broader understanding of the gospel okay we, we got to keep all of these things in our broader understanding of the gospel now it will help us with question 27 on the catechisms. Okay. Are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? The answer, no. Only those who were elected and united to Christ by faith. Why does it answer that way? Because our election, according to Ephesians 1, took place before God even created the world. He chose you for himself before the foundation of the world. You had not done any works at that point. Right? Right? Okay. So this is why I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring you all um, from the Arminian camp over into the Calvinist camp <laughs> with me, <laughs> okay, right? That's why it's important to understand these doctrines. He chose you, Ephesians 1, 3, before the foundation of the world so that you would be holy and blameless before him in love. Before he even created the world, he chose you, for himself, and he chose that you would stand in his presence in heaven before him, holy and blameless. You had not done any works because you did not exist. Neither did this planet. <laughs> the moment of your salvation had nothing to do with you. He chose you for himself, and then he took the initiative to bring you to himself. You only accepted by faith. But if we go back to the beginning of my, my series in James, you, were you accepted because he chose you. He pursued you until he changed you into a loving child. It had nothing to do with your works, as we'll see in, Ephes in Galatians. By the works of the flesh, no one is justified in his sight. Your works didn't cause you to choose him, him to choose you. Your works did not play a role 
in you putting your trust in him. And ultimately, your works play no role in him keeping you until you get to heaven. It is all his work. And when you fall short in this life, as all of us will, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin, okay? But the add-on clause there, it means, but you will. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, and he himself is the satisfaction for your sins. Jude, now unto him who's able to keep you from falling. You don't get yourself saved. You don't keep yourself saved. He keeps you from falling and is able to present you faultless in his presence. He keeps you from falling. He brings you to his presence. It has nothing to do with you. <laughs> so while we're spending a lot of time, like Job's friends and Elihu, questioning our works, like they're questioning Job's works, recognize that your failings is not why God loves you. <laughs> and your righteousness is not why God loves you. He loves you because he has poured out his love on you. And because he has done so, he saved you, he keeps you, he sanctifies you, and he will glorify you in his presence. And it has nothing to do with you. You're just along for the ride. <laughs> they went with me. So that's where we're going in Galatians. But what we have to do is finish up Job and find out, why am I suffering, though? Why is God allowing me to go through this? Okay. Now, as I said in Bible study, if you are looking for an answer to why God allows you to go through some things, Job is not your book. <laughs> Job is not your book. You will search in vain for an answer to why God allows us to suffer and go through these things. God does not answer any of those questions. As a matter of fact, when God shows up in verse 38, he says, Job, I want you to prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. And then he just go pop, 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 just shoot all these questions at Job. By the end of it, Job was like, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to say anything. I have spoken what I did not know. So I'm going to just stop right now. And God does not feel the need to answer Job in why he suffers. He doesn't feel the need to answer you and why you suffer. That's above your pay grade. <laughs> you know. But the book of Job does give us an answer to what we need when we are suffering. And that is what we will address next week when we start in chapter 38. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us an opportunity to come and again look at your word as we have been working our way through James and the book of Job. Lord, we've all uh, been wrestling. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in and through us by your spirit. Help us to see that uh, salvation is a work of God. It is not a work of man. We are born again uh, by your spirit. And just like we had nothing to do with being born by our parents, we have nothing to do with being born by you. It is all a work of God. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to know that just like we did not have a role in getting saved, we do not have a role in staying saved. You are the one who started a good work, and you are the one who's going to keep working until it's complete, as Paul said in Philippians. 
when we sin and when we fall, Lord, help us to realize that it is not our responsibility to sanctify ourselves, as we'll see in Galatians and even other places, that it is you who have purchased our sanctification with your son's blood. And your spirit will continue to work on us to sanctify us and make us holy in our lives. We just have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Help us to see, Lord, that even our ultimate glorification is not doesn't depend on, on us. It depends on you. That even when we fail, it will not stop us from standing blameless in your presence when you come. I pray, Lord, that you would keep working in our hearts as we are asking questions about why we suffer, why we go through things, why the things happen in our lives and our families' lives as, as, as we have been going through this book. I pray, Lord, that you would help us settle on the fact that even though we don't have the answers, we know for a fact that you love us. You demonstrated that love on the cross and because you have demonstrated the greatest way that you could show love to us, these small suffering, these small trials can in no way be an indication of your displeasure. But you will use all of these things in order to perfect us and to train us in holiness. I pray, Lord, that you will help us, as we will see next week, to trust your wisdom knowing that you have created all of these things in this world by your wisdom. So surely you know how to navigate the trials, the circumstances of our lives for our good. And I pray, Lord, that we would rest in your wisdom until we get to heaven and then we will understand all these things. We thank you for, these, for your word. We thank you for the life of Job. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would confirm these things in our hearts so that we would not be discouraged, as the author of Hebrews said, but that we can be trained by all of these things. We thank you now for all these your blessings in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.